Hello and welcome back to Security Insights, the podcast that takes a deeper look at today's most important issues in cybersecurity and beyond. I'm Stephen Pritchard, editor and presenter. Over the last few years, we've seen a steady growth in nation-state cyber attacks. Increasingly, these attacks are targeting commercial organizations for intelligence, intellectual property, or simply to gain leverage. Or, even if there is no specific hostile intent, businesses and public sector bodies risk being caught in the spillover from attacks aimed elsewhere. So how then can organizations defend themselves against an attacker with all the resources of a nation state behind them? Rafe Pilling is Principal Security Researcher at SecureWorks Counter Threat Unit and their technical lead for hostile state actors and APTs. His current focus is on Iran and Middle Eastern threats and these, he suggests, have their own way of operating and pose their own specific risks. First, though, I asked him what motivates nation-states to carry out cyber attacks. If anything, the, the intent of these operations is kind of what distinguishes them from e-crime sort of attacks, which are generally speaking financially motivated. On the nation-state side, the motivations are in many ways the, the very same things that that has always prompted spying and other kind of defense-related acts. So. Um, at, at a basic level, it's uh, it's espionage of one form or another. It's finding out what the the adversary is doing, uh, what are their plans in terms of um, potentially presenting a risk to you. Um, what are their plans in terms of defense? You know, how how do your capabilities stack up against theirs? Um, we also see motivations of technology and an intellectual property acquisition from from certain nations. That's a big driver for their. Um, they're sort of offensive programs. Um, and then you can move into some of the more uh, disruptive or, or destructive acts where where computer systems um, can be used to, uh, well, at a minimum, kind of you disrupt data, either render it inaccessible through things like cryptography, um, wipe it with a with a data wiper, or in some some relatively rare cases, even use computers to sort of have a, a physical effect. Um, and we've seen you know instances where obviously uh, computer viruses and, and cyber attacks have been used to disrupt uranium enrichment facilities or disrupt uh, railway um, scheduling and um, and service provision, or or even sort of um, disrupting steel factories, steel mills that will either cause the um, the steel production facilities to freeze up or, or empty sort of hot molten metal all over a facility. So a whole range of uh, different intents seen from, from different nation states. And uh, yeah, I think that's a big part. Being able to gauge what the intent is from a cyber intrusion is I think one of the the key areas that we focus on in, in sort of the the hostile state act or the APT research team, helping our customers understand the intent of a threat actor in their environment and what the risk is uh, to their environment and how that risk changes over the course of the intrusion is really important. So in practice, do you separate out conventional espionage, whether that's industrial espionage or state enterprise espionage? We have those very merged and woolly distinctions between state actors and non-state actors in some parts of the world. And all the conventional desire to intercept diplomatic and other transmissions and messages which you'd expect states to do we know that they've been doing that since electronic communications was in its infancy 
that part of the great game from more generalized disruption of economies and societies, which potentially some states engage in. And it's almost they want to disrupt the West because they can. So it would be different to one country's intelligence services looking at the traffic of another country's intelligence services or their military or the de their diplomatic corps. Uh, and it's almost a form of signaling or signposting. They're doing it because they have a capability. If they've got a capability, why not do it? Yes, I, I think, um, yeah, so there's a, a lot to a lot to unpack there but i guess um for certain countries it is it's a case of uh, as you say it's an evolution of the kind of espionage landscape you know espionage is focused on where the communication channels are you know it started off as um you know maybe horses and uh, and, and messengers with with particular messages transferred between um key sort of military facilities became the postal service became telegrams um telegraph services telephones satellite communications and now the bulk of data is exchanged through you know the cyber domain uh, over over various channels email messaging services uh, a whole range of different things these days but yeah the the sort of transfer of cyber of, of communications through those packets is a, is a key thing that many governments will want to sort of monitor and keep tabs on particularly when it comes to sort of military diplomatic key economic areas uh and then you do certainly have this idea that that cyber presents a sort of an asymmetric capability for for countries that maybe can't compete in the traditional military space in the same way they they can certainly bring their their cyber capability up to a significant you know fairly potent level uh fairly quickly in comparison to say their traditional military capabilities and as you say those capabilities can be used for a variety of sort of um purposes whether it's it's retaliatory or sort of retribution type acts against their usually sort of political but in some cases kind of regional sort of military adversaries <clears throat> um also to sort of signal displeasure at various things it's a, it can be a form of communication to sort of demonstrate you know we can do this um if you you know don't don't go along with us on this particular topic or oppose us on this area then we can we can do this thing which is maybe embarrassing or disruptive or annoying um and that's certainly i think because a lot of the kind of law of armed conflict and 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 those sort of agreements between nations is based around physical conflict and loss of life and risk to life the exactly sort of where the the lines are drawn in the cyber domain is is less clear and so there is this kind of idea of sort of nations figuring out you know where are the where are the red lines in which case you know the the response drawn from the opposition is is greater than you you might expect um you know can we can we take out a, a country a country sorry can we um take out a company can we wipe their data and disrupt them or what will the you know response be from the home nation there uh, in terms of that can we rob money from banks um what would be the response there so i think there is we're still in the kind of infancy and sort of figuring out what the the various sort of red lines are for these acts what are the appropriate responses and how public those responses are because it, it won't necessarily be the case that that any kind of proportional response certainly from a western nation will necessarily be visible to the to the world that is this idea of sub-threshold conflict i suppose yeah absolutely so that gives the adversary more space for maneuver because they can escalate and de-escalate as they require um, but of course a lot of the research that you'll be carrying out is looking at areas such as apts or advanced persistent threats and actually you might not even necessarily know that those attacks have been carried out and some of the cybercrime groups 
but are financially motivated, will go to some lengths to hide their infiltration until they're ready to activate the ransomware or whatever payload they want to use. So does that affect the perception of some of these incidents, some of these attacks? Because actually we may not know that they're there. It's um, For us only, it's less about not knowing that they're there and, and can be more about not knowing what the intent is if we interdict the intrusion at an early phase, which is exactly what we want to do. So we're not particularly interested in... Um, you know, we don't we don't want to get to a phase where we we can you know be very clear that that was a a ransomware operation because the customer is now suffering a ransomware attack and and lots of their systems are inoperable. We want to ideally prevent the attack, but we we operate in a pragmatic way. So we we accept that it's likely that eventually a threat actor will get through that that protective perimeter, and so we want to make sure we're well positioned for early detection within the environment and that kind of sweet spot of um that many organizations have between adversary gets into their environment um but adversary still needs to orient themselves figure out where the key systems are get the right sort of permissions before they can pursue their objective whether it's mass data exfiltration whether it's sort of low and slow quiet data exfiltration espionage over a long period of time whether it's a ransomware attack or maybe it's it's just straight disruptive attack all of those share the need for access to the environment and we we want to be able to detect that access as early as possible and kick them out there are other technical indicators that might enable us to sort of uh, link an intrusion to to past activity we've seen attribute it to another threat group and and therefore summarize what the intent might have been based on what we've seen in in other areas but usually you know the intent is defined by that final act and we like to um prevent that that final act being occurring Essentially, the intelligence gathering is more likely to be at the quieter end of the spectrum, I suppose. And then the the disruption, you know, if it's politically motivated, they, they want to make a noise. They want to make a statement that they have capability. And to an extent, do you see that as a warning shot saying, well, you know, if you go beyond this point in your diplomacy or even in your commercial operations, we can launch this against you and there's not a lot you can do about it? I think absolutely the, the sort of um disruptive cyber attacks are being used as a as a warning mechanism by by some countries i mean if you look at the the sony pictures attack from uh north korea for example that was uh you know clearly a demonstration that they were upset about you know that particular movie going out um they i guess from their perspective um see it as a, a you know a great insult potentially in the the sort of magnitude of, of blaspheming and uh and so they you know went and carried out that that sort of attack uh, more recently you have for example um iran's attacks against albania uh the the various sort of hack and leak operations that have been conducted um around the sort of albanian government and again signaling i think displeasure over a range of things but but one of them being the sort of presence of the MEK um, in Albania, and that's been a, a longstanding issue uh, for them. So it's absolutely used as a as a sort of a, a political tool um, as part of a range of measures, diplomatic, you know, uh, cyber, um, and particularly where military, like traditional military measures, can't be used. As a security company, we get a partial aperture. First of all, our primary focus is protecting our clients so that's that's what we're we're sort of interested in all of the other things we kind of learn around that in terms of the the geopolitical background of these issues why a particular customer or client might be targeted uh is is sort of secondary to that we 
can only infer so much from from seeing the sort of outcomes of these acts. Obviously, a lot of things go on behind the scenes, diplomatic channels um, uh, will go on behind the scenes in, in sort of you know the government of uh, of Iran, government of Albania, other sort of governments around the world. You don't you don't see those sort of side of things. So there is a you know there's a degree to which you're limited in what you you can infer. Um, but certainly, one of the things I find fascinating about this and and studying the sort of APT side of the job is understanding all of these sort of regional conflicts uh, that you might not otherwise pay much attention to. And it's almost, ex- uh, yeah, almost, almost a, a rule, I would say, that any any regional conflict between nations or, or, or even just different, um, you know, any sort of area where there's been a conflict between two groups of people, there is usually a cyber side to that conflict now. Indeed, there's always the risk of a spillover affecting commercial organisations, even if they're not the target. And we'll come back to that uh, in a moment. But let's just look at specific threat actors. There tends to be a roll call of the usual suspects. So North Korea, Russia, to an extent, China. And the one that you've been looking at in particular recently has been Iran. So is that characteristic of the whole of nation state cyber attacks or are we just focusing in on particularly noisy examples here so those the the sort of big four you've you've named there are the ones we tend to see um most frequently across our client base and therefore sort of other ones we are most interested in and certainly not in equal proportion um certainly china and Russia, sorry, China and Iran appear more frequently than than perhaps sort of Russia and North Korea uh, in in our sort of client base. And obviously, what we see is is shaped by the the client networks that we're protecting. So, generally speaking, that's not not military, not diplomatic, not sort of central government, um, but lots of commercial entities across various verticals, everything from healthcare to manufacturing to legal to financial. Um, and so, a lot of yeah, a lot of what we see is is sort of shaped by that. And you've been looking at a group called Cobalt Illusion. So tell us a little bit about, more about what they do and what their modus operandi is. Absolutely, yeah. So so Cobalt Illusion uh, is a group we track. They've been operating for a, a long time, depending on where you want to draw the boundaries for these things. But let's say, let's say 2014. Uh, and that, again, is one of the hallmarks of these types of um, groups that that distinguish them from from cybercrime groups. Now, a cybercrime group, an organized cybercrime group, may may be around for a year or two or, or longer, but often the kind of brand changes, even if the people on the back end are the same, um, you, you get an evolution in the brands. But where something like Cobalt Illusion, um, also known as sort of Charming Kitten, um, a subset of Phosphorus, uh, depending on which vendors naming convention you follow, they um, long-standing sort of cyber espionage group i guess uh you could categorize them as but they put a big focus on phishing um and getting into the the sort of uh email accounts and messaging networks of of their targets and they will target a a wide range a wide range of individuals but but commonly you see people like human rights defenders um academics studying sort of middle eastern areas journalists again studying some middle eastern areas in, in iran um, uh, intergovernmental organizations, non-governmental organizations, uh, those sort of groups commonly commonly come up in the sort of targeting of uh, Cobalt Illusion. And I mean, they've evolved their tactics over time. Um, they, you know, phishing of, of webmail services like Gmail, Yahoo, um, 
Outlook, oh, sorry, Office 365, those sort of things are the kind of bread and butter of their their operations. But um, I think they are they they have developed their their sort of phishing approach. Um, so now they take you know a longer time to engage with the target, build up rapport, and um, and once they've reached that point where they've developed that trust, then they will go and and try and sort of fish that individual, uh, try and capture their credentials through a a fake Google Gmail um, portal page or, or whatever it might be, and, and that's kind of one of the things that distinguishes them from you know lots of other groups who will use phishing. It's that. Um, that building of that relationship and, and sort of rapport, uh, which is quite interesting. And that's quite a specific way of operating for them, isn't it? They sort of invest a lot of time and effort into that. Uh, I think, you know, others, other groups will play the sort of numbers game. Um, and I'm sure Cobalt Illusion do to some extent, but when they, they are interested in a particular target, they will spend some time sort of reeling them in. And um, and yeah, it's that reaching out sort of this social media-based phishing. So not just not just sending people emails with links or malicious attachments, um, but but approaching people over different platforms, uh, whether it you know might be WhatsApp, might be Facebook, might be uh, LinkedIn, and and trying to you know find some sort of shared interest. Um, and I mean, some of the, the more recent attacks have been quite fascinating. Interviews have long long been a theme which they use to engage with people, particularly sort of journalists or, or when they pose as journalists. Um, but more recently, that's been you know they've been taking it to the stage where they've actually been jumping on Zoom calls with people, uh, presumably injecting fake video from their end um, and engaging in this this sort of interview conversation and then delivering phishing links via the the chat um, in that in that call, which is um, yes, yeah, it's, it's quite quite a bold approach. You don't see that from many groups. And what do we know about their motivation? We assess that they um, they work with the uh, RGC intelligence organization, potentially other customers as well. Um, that is a RGC is a a, a military um, formation in in Iran, and we believe this is sort of a intelligence collection that will be blended in with with other sort of sources um, to potentially harass individuals that are, are outside of Iran, potentially um, target individuals inside of Iran for arrest and detention. Um, but yeah, be blended with other sort of human-focused operations. And the other group that you looked at earlier in the year was uh, Cobalt Sapling. And again, there's a whole lineage of these groups. There's uh, Abraham's Axe, Cobalt Sapling that I think your research suggests are are certainly um, tightly connected, if not the same, and they've been targeting Saudi Arabia. So, how does that fit into the overall picture? Are they a similar group, or or are they uh, simply coming from the same nation state origins? So, Cobalt Sapling is the name we use to track that set of activity, and there are there are two personas that have been um, associated with that with that group. So, there was a, a persona called Moses' staff. That was used. It was sort of set itself up as a, you know, sort of pro-Palestinian group, and uh, would focus on on attacking entities in Israel. Really, sort of mostly sort of harassment, um, kind of trying to spread fear and intimidation, um, hack and leak type operations, and then and then kind of publicizing them through their their Moses staff website. They've had a range of different organizations, um, both private and and government entities it's uh it's part of a sort of i guess a thing we see repeatedly with uh iranian groups where they create these sort of fake personas of various kinds so even we we think way back to like 2013 or 2012 i think with the shamoon attacks 
Um, they were claimed by sort of the cutting sword of justice or the the Arab youth group, um, two personas that I think emerged to to claim responsibility for that. Both of which, you know, tie back to tie back to Iran. I think maybe the the Arab youth group was put out there first and um, wasn't seen as I don't know convincing enough or, or big enough, and so they went with this cutting sword of justice persona. And that that has just continued through their their operation. I mean, it's it's something you see reflect in their their sort of physical world operations as well, where they act through proxies and intermediaries. But more recently, in the last couple of years, there's definitely been an uptick in the number of different uh, sort of inauthentic or ephemeral personas that they will use to front their operations. So this hacktivist group, Moses staff to target Israel, was the one that came first. And then towards the end of last year, uh, there was Abraham's Axe. And that that persona um, initially leaked information that they claimed to have taken from uh, Saudi Arabian government agencies. That persona is so far, um, you know, we've not seen any new attacks related to um, to that particular persona. And again, in terms of what I mentioned before about this, these sort of cyber attacks reflecting things in the real world, we have seen recently um, an agreement, uh, I think brokered by China for Iran and, and Saudi Arabia to sort of reestablish uh, a degree of diplomatic relations. So these sort of attacks, I think, you know, it's always hard to see. You might think that that would play against any sort of um, reaching of, of relations between two countries uh, if you're going to sort of hack their their government entities and leak their their data online. Um, but it's this, this back and forth of which we only see part of it um, between these sort of two countries. And yeah, Iran likes to use these these sort of personas as I don't know another form of bargaining chip on the table, perhaps in their their sort of foreign policy operations. Have these come across as highly focused and quite clearly political? How does that contrast to some of the larger scale attacks we've seen coming out of, say, Russia and other countries, where it's been primarily a ransomware group operating either with the active backing or certainly a blind eye turned by governments, or uh, as we've seen more recently, these wiper attacks, which are just intending to destroy data and therefore disable systems at a much more broad scale than what we're talking about here from Iran, it seems. Different groups in Iran will, will do different things. That Iran, as you might expect, placed a lot of focus on, on Israel. Um, in terms of Russia, again, they you know they at the moment certainly are placing a lot of focus on Ukraine in terms of their their targeted wiper attacks and those i mean from 2014 up until uh i guess february of 2022 cyber was one of the key weapons if you will that were was being used by by Russia against um against Ukraine there were multiple waves of disruptive attacks against the financial services industry in in Ukraine against the um power networks in U- Ukraine several several sort of winter periods where um electricity power was knocked out uh, through through cyber attacks but once the once the war started once once sort of Russia invaded uh, I think those cyber attacks took a sort of a backseat to the sort of kinetic warfare. Now, it's not to say they didn't continue to happen. There's been some great reporting, particularly from uh, Microsoft, for example, on other waves of wiper attacks that have occurred uh, in Ukraine. And we also saw the the acid rain attack, the sort of um, attacks against satellite networks on the uh, eve of the, the invasion. Um, and that, again, you know, looked like a sort of a 
a surgical strike against communication networks. I don't think it was as surgical as they um, maybe have hoped, or maybe they just didn't care uh, in terms of there was collateral damage impact to to sort of other areas of Europe, and perhaps the the impact on on military operations wasn't as great as intended. Uh, but yeah, a lot of these wipers, a lot of most most nations when they use wipers and destructive attacks, it is it is directed against specific targets for specific sort of political or military purposes. You do sometimes have mistakes, things like not Petya, uh, an attack that I think was generally intended to disrupt and um, uh, cause havoc in, in Ukraine that kind of escaped um, as as network worms are, are want to do and spread outside and you know impacted the rest of the world quite significantly from a economic perspective and even um, impacted some targets in in Russia and that's that's kind of what happens when you release a, a network worm as we saw with WannaCry as well from from North Korea that question of spillover then i suppose that is the one that probably worries uh, cso's most of all so uh, if we can look at the defensive steps that people can take in two uh, firstly the individuals or groups who may be being targeted by the type of actors we've just been talking about from iran and then more broadly that risk that somebody somewhere launches an attack against a target or a set of targets for nation state objectives political military diplomatic but you're caught in the crossfire uh, because you use similar infrastructure so in, in the case of the ransomware incidents affecting the nhs for example it was due to commonality of systems in um, windows servers wasn't it rather than anyone specifically targeting the nhs or, or british hospitals or, or gp practices or anything of that nature for most organizations the great thing is that you don't have to do anything particularly special for for sort of apt in fact everything you should be doing to protect against ransomware attacks which are, are by far the the more realistic threat for most organizations out there and a, and a very real one that all all sort of businesses should be taking seriously and should be modeling their sort of cyber defenses around um that's where people should sort of focus their attention the top three in Initial infection vectors or initial access vectors that we see are email-borne threats. So maybe maybe sort of phishing um, to capture credentials or, or delivering a malicious attachment. Scan and exploit activity against internet-exposed systems that are unpatched with some sort of vulnerability. And I'm not generally speaking talk about something that's zero-day here that there is no patch for. I'm generally talking about things that have been patched, maybe recently disclosed, and therefore threat actors, um, both criminal and nation-state, will try to rapidly weaponize and productionize the the use of those uh, exploits to gain access to systems before they get patched. Uh, and lastly, sort of other malware infections, uh, which are, you know, can be can can occur for a, a wide variety of reasons. So for any given organization, you want to think about multi-factor authentication or strong strong authentication for your internet facing um, you know remote access solutions or any kind of internet facing systems um, provision that sort of thing for your your employees when you're creating a sort of a, a web portal for users um, create some sort of uh, secure multi-factor or second factor authentication system if you are a user um, and any of your online services that you're using with Twitter um, webmail whatever it might be lots of these platforms now offer that multi-factor authentication and you should make use of that because even if you do get tricked into uh, giving up your credentials somehow the threat actor then can't get into your account without that second factor now there are ways that they can they can try and work around that and capture that they can try and trick you into giving up that second factor authentication there are some phishing kits which are quite good now uh, in terms of intercepting 
your your communications and, and capturing multi-factor authentication tokens, but it certainly raises the bar significantly um, against just single single password and username type authentication. Patching systems is a huge one. Uh, making sure you patch as, as quickly as possible, particularly focused on those internet facing systems. Don't don't present uh, vulnerabilities to the internet that threat acts can exploit. And then being diligent about detecting malware within your network, um, whether it comes from an AV solution or uh, an endpoint detection response solution, detect those uh, malware infections quickly and uh, get rid of them. And ideally, track down how they how they got in in the first place. So all three of those attack vectors are used by both nation state and criminal actors, um, and, and they should be sort of areas where, where all organizations focus. You can also, when it comes to things like Iran, and they're using sort of social media phishing and they're sort of pretexting the social engineering to a greater degree, raising staff awareness, you know, regularly sort of informing them about different tactics that threat actors are using, the different, you know, if someone approaches you out of the blue to negotiate an interview and and how you go about verifying that that's a real, a real individual you're talking to and and being safe in in, in part of that sort of interview process is is really important. You can do sort of adversarial phishing within within organizations. So where you fish your own users, but again, that has to be done in a way that engenders a, a culture of awareness within um, within the company, you're not. A, it's not about sort of catching out your employees, making them feel bad, making them feel stupid and, and alienated. It's about raising their awareness of you know what a, a phishing approach might look like, whether it comes through email, through a, a social network, or a messaging platform, uh, and who to report that to, which is the other key part of that. Making sure that that's been centrally collected by a CISO type organization. So all of those are, are, are really important, and they're absolutely the bread and butter of what companies need to do. You can then layer on top of that some supply chain type concerns, uh, and whether that's you know things like, um, say, like a solar wind style attack, which is really hard to to effectively mitigate against. That that requires some some good internal discipline and hygiene in terms of network segmentation, in terms of assigning the right permissions to to things uh, to systems. But we also see just when a threat actor can't hack. A particularly hard target, they will go to a, a softer target that has a relationship with that hard target, and that is the more common supply chain attack that we see. And there's also the sort of thing that that happens with these these sort of wiper worms, these these worms like NotPetya, like WannaCry that we've seen escape. They follow the the network conduits that exist between businesses with VPN connections, um, you know, whatever it might be, and that's how they spread between between different networks and infect a wider range of organizations. So being aware of your supply chain, being aware of who has access to your network, making sure there's a, a good degree of sort of firewalling and, and monitoring of those connections, it's really important. And then when it comes to your software, think about what, you, what you're importing into your, your software development chain. How do you trust the sort of source of those software libraries or, or other modules that you're importing? So we do start to see threat actors compromising software packages that are then imported into a wide range of other applications that, that organizations use. And so they're sort of subverting the, the supply chain in that way. And I think that will be increasingly be a way we see um, threat actors getting in, um, you know, compromising NPM modules or um, other as aspects of continuous integration and continuous continuous development pipelines. But the preventative measures then, just to summarize, although you're not specifically as 
you know, most of your clients will be the enterprise space. You're not specifically looking after people working in, in NGOs or pressure groups or, or journalists or uh, activists or whoever, but actually the sort of measures that individuals in a corporate environment should be taking to secure their online personas and harden their online presence will be broadly similar, whether they're in the enterprise or in, say, the, the voluntary sector. Absolutely. So, you know, where, where organizations uh, are making use of uh, Twitter or, or LinkedIn or other social media platforms in their day to day, it's um, it, it's making sure you're using those multi-factor uh, authentication uh, security features that they, they provide. Ideally, avoid the SMS based ones if you can. Um, SMS is, you know, there are a variety of attacks against SMS, which makes it less desirable than perhaps like an app based um uh, option on your on your phone um but all of those things have have great security solutions um and it makes it harder for the the adversary to compromise those accounts use good passwords check um so another another way uh, threat actors can can gain it once they've gained access they can maintain access to those those portals is through um registering an application that can access your email account or your twitter account whatever it might be so checking any uh applications that have been authorized to access your account and that they're you know those sort of um information is visible through the uh through the various sort of security options in in these platforms make sure that you you understand any application that's talking to your email account twitter account that it's supposed to be there if you don't recognize it delete it remove it make sure it's um it no longer has that sort of access Rafe Billing on some of the steps organisations can take that will improve their protection against ransomware and nation-state attacks, but also on the need to guard against vulnerabilities in the supply chain. That, though, is all for this episode of Security Insights. We'll be back in two weeks' time. Until then, you can catch up on past programmes on our website, securityinsights.co.uk, and, of course, on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Amazon and Spotify. Thanks again for listening.